Father, we come before you once more, Lord. We thank you and we praise you in the name of Jesus. We declare you are good, Lord. We say we love you, Lord, because you first loved us. And Lord, thank you for this wonderful opportunity to get into your word. Um, teach us, Lord, by the Holy Spirit. Guide us, Lord. Lead us, Lord, so that our eyes can be opened to see your glory and your majesty. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Today the message is entitled, Flame On. And I'm looking around this room to see whether your face expressions changed or not. Uh, whether you are familiar with these two words called Flame On. Um, hands up those who are familiar with these two words. Wow, okay, so it's like five of you. The rest of you, you have never heard these two words called Flame On. Let me just explain a little bit that this title is inspired by this guy. His name is called Johnny Storm. Johnny Storm, okay? And uh, he is, other than, other than his name, Johnny Storm, he's known as a human torch of the Fantastic Four series. Is it more familiar to you now, Fantastic Four? So, like the rest of the other uh, superheroes in there, Jonathan, or Johnny Storm, gained his powers from a spacecraft bombarded by cosmic rays. And he can engulf his entire body in flames. He's able to fly. He can absorb fire harmlessly into his own body. And he can control any nearby fire by sheer force of will. So this is Johnny Storm. And the way he gets his fire on is that he shouts these two words, Flame on! And he, you know, he gets all on fire like that, okay? So this is where the title comes from. But tonight, we don't want to talk about Johnny Storm. We're actually looking at Johnny the Baptist. <laughs> it's a Johnny still, but a different Johnny, huh? But we know that he is also quite a fiery guy, Right? We have been exploring John the Baptist over the past two weeks. Last week's message was about repentance. It wasn't easy to share. And maybe that's why the people are not here tonight. <laughs> but you guys are here. I love you. Thank you. But John the Baptist's message of repentance and, you know, his overall feel would involve references to fire. So tonight, we want to examine some of his statements. And the verses that would be relevant for us will be from Matthew chapter 3, verse 7, verse 10, verse 11, and verse 12. References to fire, or at least things that would be associated with fire. For example, in verse 7, he says to the Pharisees and Sadducees, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Verse 10, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Verse 11, talking about Jesus, that he will come and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And later on in the next verse, he will also burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So we want to look at this word called fire, the picture of fire and what it represents, what it means, and especially in this context of Johnny the Baptist declaring the word of the kingdom and what implications does it have for all of us as believers of Jesus Christ. Let's start with God. In the Bible, God is also associated with fire. These are some references, not all, just some. Like in Genesis chapter 15, verse 17. We know this verse is, um, very well. It comes at a time when Abram was uh, put to sleep, right? And then that there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between the pieces, the sacrifices. So God appears 
And we know it is God Himself who walked through those pieces. There's smoke, there's fire. Of course, the most popular to all of us will be Exodus. Chapter 3, verse 2, everyone knows the burning bush. Every Sunday school student would know the burning bush color so many times. And the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. And the bush, of course, we know was not consumed. Later on, Israel, after coming out from Egypt, would come back to that same mountain in Mount Sinai. And it says in chapter 19, verse 18 of Exodus, Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. Another reference of God as He appears, it is like fire. Later on in Exodus chapter 24, verse 17, it describes the sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. Now these two words, consuming fire, will be repeated and quoted again in the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 29. And it says, For our God is like a consuming fire. So many times when people tell you, you know, the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament uh, somehow a bit different, right? No, no? You can tell them it's not true. The Old Testament and the New Testament, our God does not change. He was a consuming fire then. He is a consuming fire now. And He will be a consuming fire. So God is usually referenced with fire. You will see also in other passages, which we will not explore tonight, that the things associated with God are also described with fire. Remember the chariot of fire, right? And things even, you know, in, in his, around his throne room, there's fire. So fire at times would be associated with God. But let's look at some parallels of fire, some metaphors or some pictures of fire that you and I, you know, we are familiar with. For example, physical life depends on the sun. So if you look at that orange ball up there, the, the sun is really a ball of fire. And if the sun extinguishes itself or becomes, you know, extinguished for some reason, you and I will not be here anymore. In the same way, all of life, spiritual life and physical life, we depend on God. Can you see that parallel? At the same time, fire provides light and it lights up the darkness. Similarly, God overcomes the powers of darkness. He provides illumination. He brings understanding. He gives guidance and direction. Fire also protects and wards off. So if you are you know, confronted by a pack of wild animals or someone comes against you, you know, if you wave that fire, the animals run away. God as well protects us. And the Bible says that He surrounds, He has a circle of fire around Jerusalem and His saints. Fire also comforts and brings warmth. And so we like this one, don't we? There's this nice fuzzy feeling, you know? And for the Methodists down here, John Wesley, his heart was strangely warmed. Right? And so sometimes in the presence of God, or when He encounters us and we encounter Him, we can, we can feel a warmth around ourselves and it comforts us. At the same time, fire is also mysterious, it's immaterial, it, it flickers, it, it changes. You, know, you, you, can't, you can't box it, you, know? you, you cannot put it in a, in, a, in, a, in a clear shape, so to speak. Well, God is also in, in some ways you know, indefinable, beyond grasp. God is like a, like a mystery to us. You know, you, you can't contain God in a box. And even as we talk about God being referenced as fire, you can't just say that 
in every fire, God is there. You, you can't keep him there. For example, Elijah was on the Mount of Horeb. There was an earthquake, you know, and then there was a fire. But God was not in the fire. You see that? And God speaks to Elijah in a still, small voice. Today's popular usage links fire with this one word called passion. And so if you look at a heart down there that's, that's burning, you, you, you know, you'll say that that heart is burning with passion. I, I haven't come across a verse that really tells that to us. You know? So I think it's more a modern, contemporary uh, um, association. But let me know if you find a verse. I would love to, to quote it. You know? But the closest one I think is found in Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 9 where Jeremiah is saying, you know, I, I, Lord, don't make me preach these difficult things. He says, I will not make mention of him, nor speak anymore in his name. Why? Because every time he speaks in God's name, he gets whacked. You know, so he goes back to God and he says, enough, no, I, I'm not going to say anymore. But his word was in my heart like a burning fire shut up in my bones. I was weary of holding it back and I could not. You see, when God comes upon us and His Word is there, it burns like fire. You want to keep quiet also, you cannot. How many of you would like that? Wouldn't that be wonderful? The real biblical burning with, with passion to declare the Word of God, even if it gets you into trouble. But specific to tonight, our teaching... God's fire is often associated with His anger, His rage, or His wrath. Fire is, is like, it's, it's, it gets angry, you know, when it moves through something, you know, we, we, we see it, we call it a raging fire. So same thing, God's wrath is depicted with fire. But our theme tonight, will look at fire being something that is used to purify. That's a good thing about fire. The not-so-nice thing about fire is that fire is also used to destroy. So fire can purify, it can also destroy. And so in the same way, God also purifies. And guess what? God also destroys. Now, you've got to hold both in tension. And of course, we like to add a qualifier in that God purifies the righteous and God destroys the wicked. So with this as an introduction to the picture of fire and how it's used you know, to describe God and the, the various parallels, let's get into what John the Baptist is trying to share in his fiery message. And as I gave you four verses, we will explore it as four points. And after sharing these four points with you, we will draw from these four points the implications for us as believers. So the very first thing we learn from Johnny the Baptist is that there is a wrath to come and there is a wrath to be fled from. He declares to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And so if we look at this one line, we can safely conclude that there will be a time when God's wrath will be poured out. Now, we may not like to admit this, but if you read the entire Bible, you'll see that God's wrath is a major theme major theme throughout the Bible. God's wrath is also a part of His nature as well as His character. You cannot erase God's wrath from your Bible. You can't look at Him today and you say, oh, it's only God's love. It's only God's grace. What you're doing is you're lobbing off one part of who God is. God's wrath is very much a part of Him. I'm just thankful that in the Bible it tells me that God is slow to anger. Isn't that wonderful? 
God is slow to anger, but He does get angry. And when that happens, it will not be something we will be jumping about. Now, we don't like to talk about wrath very much because it doesn't sound nice. Lah. Right? Nobody likes an angry person and who wants an angry God. But it is a part of who God is. At the same time, we see that God's wrath is also associated with fire. Let me just read one or two verses just to let you hear this. Psalm 21 verse 9. You shall make them as a fiery oven in the time of your anger. The Lord shall swallow them up in His wrath, and a fire shall devour them. See, the word wrath is mentioned or described as an expression culminating in fire and burning up. Ezekiel 21, 31, he says, I will pour out my indignation on you. I will blow against you with the fire of my wrath. And that phrase seems to be Ezekiel's uh, way of, of expressing. There are other verses in there you can Google or you can do your concordance check. The fire of my wrath. All the way through to Revelations chapter 6, verse 15, so that you will see it's not only in the Old Testament, you will find it also in the New. And there it says, Fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. We, we don't sing about that too much, right? The wrath of the Lamb. Say, so, wow, the lamb, this meek, me, me, you know, wrath of the lamb. Verse 17, for the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? See, the coming of the Lord in Old Testament eschatological understanding is also known as the day of the Lord. That's what they're looking for. The Messiah will come the day of the Lord. It's also referenced as the great day of His wrath. So you see in Malachi chapter 3, verse 2, it says, who can endure the day of His coming? Who can stand when He appears? That's why to the Jews, when they're saying, you know, come, send the Messiah. The idea is that when the Messiah comes, obviously He comes to save, He comes to deliver, He comes to restore, He comes to make all things good. So for them as covenant people of God, that's good news. Praise the Lord. And so to them, it also means bad news for those who have been oppressing them. So when we understand the wrath of God, do you know sometimes people look at the earthquakes that are happening around us? They look at the floods, they look at the natural disaster, and very quickly those prophetic people would jump, oh, this is God's judgment, this is wrath that's being poured out. After studying this passage, I seem to be thinking, we ain't seen nothing yet. We ain't seen nothing yet. If you think those are catastrophic and, you know, big, there are bigger things coming. These are only the signs of the times. Birth banks. There's a wrath to come and there's a wrath that we must flee from, that people need to flee from. These are only warnings and wake-up calls. The second thing we learn from Johnny the Baptist is that every tree which does not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. We read that in verse 10. Continuing with his discourse or his words to the Sadducees and the Pharisees, he says, even now the axe is laid to the roots of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire we see that John addressed the religious hypocrites. These were the religious leaders of his day. But what can we learn from these religious leaders? Firstly, they were presumptuous of their status as God's covenant people. Now that statement, you've got to 
ponder a little bit more for ourselves even. They are God's covenant people. Is God not a covenant-keeping God? Of course He is. But just because they are God's people and God keeps covenant, can they then live any old way they want? You can't. You cannot be presumptuous of your covenant status. It is by grace we appreciate it, but they lived as if they are all okay. They presumed upon their own positions. We see also that their lives did not exemplify God's kingdom. The funny thing is, these guys were your Bible study leaders. These would be your equivalent spiritual leaders, your counselors, your lawyers. And so they would teach one thing, but they will not live it out themselves. So John addressed these religious hypocrites and says, look, you must bear fruit worthy of repentance. That's what we covered. I said, okay, fine. So John addressed this group of people. Do you realize that Jesus addressed his disciples with the same picture? He says, I am the true vine. John chapter 15, verse 1, my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Now, these are not easy words to listen to. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them where? Into the fire. And they are burned. So John looks at the religious hypocrites. He declares that if you don't bear good fruit, get ready for the fire. Jesus says to his disciples, if you don't bear fruit, get ready for the fire. See, fruitfulness is a major kingdom theme. We will explore this more in at another time. But for now, you know, let this be a reminder even for us to ponder and say, Lord, I want to bear fruit. Help me understand this. Give me a revelation. What does it really mean? Did Jesus really meant that? Or maybe he was just being symbolic. But let Scripture speak to us, amen? Right? Let Scripture speak to us. And we are seeing it in context. We are seeing the consistency of Scripture being used. And this is the second point from John's fiery message and his use of fire. The third point is this. John's baptism with water symbolizes a washing, a purification but then he points to Jesus. Jesus' baptism with the Holy Spirit and fire is thus for the same purpose. Amen? If you read it consistently and in context, John served a purpose which he then says, Jesus will come, but he will build upon that. So that's why we read in verse 11 of Matthew 3, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. See, it's more than just a ceremonial washing. And you have, you have this in the religious system. That's what they have. You, you wash and they have water, holy water to, for you to, to, to wash in so that you can be purified and it's symbolic of you being cleaned. But the ceremonial washing is useless because if it's only on the outward and nothing changes on the inside, then it's for show. It's got to go beyond a ceremonial religious rite. But if your heart is engaged, then the ceremonial washing on the outside would then truly 
represent the cleansing of the heart that is inside. And once that is correct and that is true, then it must result from the inside out changed life and a changed behavior. It's the same when Paul says, look, your fleshly circumcision, he was telling to the Jews, where the Jews held their circumcision to a very high order. And he says, look, it's, it's not anyone who's circumcised who is a Jew. No. That's only a physical manifestation in that sense. But it is one who's circumcised in the heart who is a true Jew. So you can go through all the religious duties you can go through all the ceremonial stuff, but as long as your heart is not engaged and nothing changes, no use. But as we have discovered, John would always, in his ministry, point to Jesus. And he says, He will baptize you with Holy Spirit and fire. And John knew that his baptism was only a foreshadow of what Jesus would and could do. His was symbolic, but Jesus has the real deal. Because only the Holy Spirit can deal with our sin. Amen? John's baptism of water was symbolic, but he was pointing to someone who was greater than him. He knew that his would come to an end and he has to decrease and Jesus will take over and he is the real thing. See, Malachi chapter 3, verse 2 and 3, I read to you just now. Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? Then it goes on. For he is like a refiner's fire. And like launderer's soap, well, fire not enough, still must have soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi. He will perch them as gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. See, friends, only the Holy Spirit who is God Himself can deal effectively with all our sin. And we know that when, believe, when we believe in Jesus, the Holy Spirit is given to us and even before He comes upon us, in Titus chapter 3, verse 4, it says that it is the Holy Spirit that will bring the washing of regeneration and renewing. He washes us clean, the Holy Spirit. That is the first act that the Holy Spirit does for every sinner that comes before God. But does He stop there? He does not. Because the Holy Spirit, after washing us, continues to refine us with fire. See, many times we think it's a once and for all, it's a done deal and it's finished. No, He washes us, but now He refines us. And in Akiva's awakening language, I always talk about alignment. You see, when we come to the Lord, we come in repentance. When we repent, there's always restoration. But restoration only brings us to a certain point and positions us for the next thing, which is refinement. This is what the Lord is after. So I don't want you just to be satisfied with a repentance where the Lord forgives. You say, well, that's good. That keeps you in right standing. He restores you to right order. But He says, I've got more for you. I want to refine you as pure gold. I want to purify you, see? Fourth thing we learn from John's message is in verse 12. His winnowing fan is in his hand and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. I think it's very clear this point. Jesus will bring in his wheat and he will burn up the chaff. How's that for revelation? This is like primary school in our time. We call it comprehension. Today they, they call it something else, I don't know. Right? When you read the passage, they ask you a question and you look for the same words huh, and you go back and answer it. The question is whether I understood what I answered. 
He will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Unquenchable fire is a reference to, to hell. And there was a preacher who said it this way, hell is real and forever is a long time. Now in the Old Testament, there's this place called the Valley of Ben-Hinnom, where in the Greek, they refer to it as Gehenna. And this is a little valley that is southeast of Jerusalem. In this valley, they used to make child sacrifices to Molech and to Baal. And how would they do child sacrifices? They pass them through fire. So in this valley, there will be fire that is in there. Not only that, it would also be a place of uh, burial. Or not really burial. It was, it was more like a dumping ground for bodies who have been slain. And they're left to decompose, you know, and left to the elements. The, the wild animals will come and pick at the, the, the flesh and the meat and things like that, okay? And so it's not a nice place. So it's smelly, it's dirty, you know, they, they have fire down there. Um, it's not great. So finally, in 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 10, Josiah declares this place unholy. It is an unholy site. And from that time on, it became a, a, like a garbage dump. And it's like uh, today what we call our incinerator. Right? So, you know, we have an island where we dump our waste and then they, they have, there's a landfill. They don't do it there. Okay? They'll put all their waste down there and they burn. And there's so much dumping that is there that is a place of destruction and as a place of burning, you will always see fire, you will always see smoke. And so the Jews will look at that place and look as, it, as if it's God's curse upon the dead. Now Jesus made many references to Gehenna. Now you may not find the word Gehenna because it's translated in our English as hellfire. Hellfire. But to the Jews, they would understand when you say Gehenna, it's like, oh man, terrible place. I don't want to go there. So like, for example, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 22, Jesus says, I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. That's Gehenna. Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. Do not fear those who can kill the body physically, but they cannot kill the soul. But rather fear Him, who is God, who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. That's Gehenna. And so it was such a terrible place. Nobody wants to go there. And so Jesus uses a, a hyped statement in Matthew chapter 18, verse 9, he says, If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye than having two eyes, you get cast into Gehenna or hellfire. It's worth it to lose one eye. It's worth it to lose one hand. It's worth it to lose something. Just don't get there. <laughs> That's hell. We know that in Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, the devil, the beast, and the false prophet will be cast into the lake of fire where they will be tormented forever. And not only them, they're going to have company. Those who are not found in the book of life will join them in the lake of fire forever. Hell is real. And forever is a long time. And from this point, we see also that at the right time, there will be a time of separation. The time is not now. But there will come a time where Jesus will, with His winnowing fan in His hand, he will thoroughly clean out the threshing floor. And if, I mean, we, we don't see this happening in our uh, uh, built-up city life. But the farmers, what they will do is that as they gather in the wheat, they will use something, a shovel or a fan, and they will, they will 
they will, they will use a spade and they will throw the kernels of wheat up. And whatever is heavy, which is the, the heads or the grains, huh, they will fall back down. But all the other part, the husks, as you throw it out and it separates, the wind will blow and the chaff and it will be blown away. And what comes now will be the wheat. The others will be blown away. So the wheat will be gathered and brought into the barn. And what's left will be the chaff, the little bits. These will be gathered and they'll be burned. So at the right time, there will be a separation. We see this also told to us in a different parable by the Lord, the parable of the wheat and the tares. And the wheat and the tares, they both look very similar. You can't tell as they're growing up which is wheat and which is tare. But at the right time, you'll, make, you'll, you'll see the difference. And yet, the Lord says, don't separate them first. Until the end of age, then we separate. Because if you pull out the tares now, you will also yank out the wheat. There's also the parable of the dragnet, where the kingdom of God is like that. You just pull everything in. The good and the, not so, and the wicked, you pull everything in. And then at the right time, there will be a separation. And these will be cast into the fire. There will be a separation, as we have already noted, between fruitfulness and unfruitfulness. Or fruitful with good works and fruitful with bad works. Because it says you need to bear good fruit. Some trees will bear fruit, except that it's not good. Four points from John's fiery message. So let's look at our kingdom implications. Because this was all a part of John's announcement of the kingdom of God, remember? His first line was, repent. And he gives you the reason. Because the kingdom of God is near. It's come near you, but its fullness is not realized yet. In other words, there's still time for you to respond. There's still time for you to, to have a self-evaluation, to turn and to return. And don't think that this is only for unbelievers, although that's very, very specific and appropriate. But, you know, as believers, I believe this message is also relevant to us. What are the kingdom implications for believers of Jesus Christ? The first point, we have been saved from God's wrath. Is that a hallelujah? Praise the Lord. You see, we believe in Jesus Christ by faith according to grace. We believe that we have been saved from the wrath of God. In Romans chapter 5, verse 9, Paul in his theology writes this, much more than having now been justified by the blood of Jesus, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. So if you believe in Jesus Christ, you are found in Christ. You and I have this promise that we will be saved through Him. Amen? Right? Because Jesus, upon the cross, He took upon the sins of the world. And He was judged on our behalf. The wrath of God was poured out upon Him. And because of that, we have salvation in and through Him. We see the same thing in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how we turned to God from idols, or how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Verse 10, and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us, saves us from the wrath to come. That's the promise you and I have. And I want you to know this. It is entirely by His grace that He demonstrated His love that whilst we were yet sinners, He sent forth His Son to die for us. Praise the Lord. But do we just sit there and, you know, do nothing about it? No, because in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 
The whole passage from verse 1 to verse 11 talks about the coming of the Lord, the day of the Lord that is coming. And Paul is explaining to the people, because you have this promise, you go back and read this entire passage, but let me read verse 6 onwards for you. Because you understand this, therefore, let us not sleep. Let us not sleep as others do. Don't go into slumber, but let us watch and let us be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk are drunk at night, but let us who are of the day be sober. Putting on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Look at Paul's language. Many times we talk about salvation, we would say we were saved, right? But look at his language. This phrase says, come on, stay awake. Be sober. Look at how you are living. Look at what's all around you so that you can look forward as a helmet, put it on so that you can have this hope of salvation that is to come. He talks about salvation that has passed. He talks about salvation that is ongoing and he talks about the hope of salvation to come. Then he goes on verse 9. Why do you need to do all this? Because God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He sandwiches everything, you understand? He's telling you what a great promise you have, and because of this great promise, this is how you should live. Today in popular Christianity, we, we don't talk about this. We say, because you have a great promise, sit down, shake legs, and let's have a good time. That's not Paul's words. And some have taken this passage and say, well, don't worry, you know, it's, it's all right, sure, safe, because there's going to be a rapture. So we have this word called the rapture, and there's a teaching on rapture, and there's this whole debate whether is it a pre-tribulation rapture, a mid-tribulation rapture, or a post-tribulation rapture. Can I, by the show of hands, you know, uh, just show me, okay, how many of you understand pre, mid, and post-trip? Okay, how many of you have not heard of pre, mid, or post-trip? How many of you are awake? Okay, are you confused? Alright, now very quickly. Pre-tribulation, when, and in short, they call it pre-trip. Pre-tribulation or pre-tribbers believe that Christians, believers, will be raptured, taken up, caught up, okay, before the great tribulation, the seven years. Mid-tribulation people believe that you will go through half, three and a half years, and then you'll be taken up. So depending on how you see your seven years, is it all seven years tribulation, a great tribulation, or is it three and a half years peace, and then the Antichrist comes on, but before that you're already taken up. Okay? And so you miss the tribulation. Post-tribulation means you will go through, they believe that you will go through all the seven years of tribulation and then you'll be raptured. So the pre-tribbers actually say that we will not, because of this whole passage, we will not experience God's wrath. And since it's a promise that we will not experience God's wrath, then obviously we will be gone before the, the wrath is poured out. So they hold to this. So when you listen to an end times talk by a pre-tribulation person, you always hear that promise, but we'll be gone. But we'll be gone. We won't be here. Okay? But for a post-tribber, he says, no, 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 no. Okay, let me back up. For the pre-tribbers, the biblical uh, uh, discussion that they, or rather the, the biblical basis is, look at Noah. God put Noah in the ark, took him away, the flood came, and then the judgment came, you see? So God took Noah out first, judgment comes after that. Look at Lot, Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot is saved and taken out first, and then fire and brimstone comes down on Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay? For the post-tribber, says that, no, we will go through the great tribulation, believers. But... Biblically, as we see, Israel was in Egypt and they were saved in a Goshen. When God's wrath comes, 
we as God's believers, we will be saved from His wrath. We will still be here, but there will be a distinction. Okay? At the same time, we can look at the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, or rather chapter 24, verse 13. He says, but those who endure to the end will be saved. So can you see why there are different camps? Because you have which Bible story you want to sleep with, uh, that's all. Now I tell you, now tonight you all cannot sleep. <laughs> my, my objective tonight is not really to tell you whether it's a pre-trip or a post-trip. It'll take too long. My point is, regardless of your position, I'm asking you, how are you living? Would that be a good question? Yeah? If you get zapped up before the trip, praise the Lord. If we have to hang on until after the trip, praise the Lord. The question is, are we ready? See, these are kingdom implications, guys. If we are holding on to an escape mentality and for some strange reason if these pre-trippers are wrong, guess what? You're not ready for the seven years. I want to believe in a pre-trip, but I want to prepare for a post-trip. Amen? The second implication is this, we want to bear good fruit. See, true repentance involves conversion. It's a change of lifestyle and our behavior. In the Bible, you will see different mentions of fruit and we will explore that another time. But you see fruit of righteousness. You see fruit of holiness. You will see the fruit of good works. And the implication for us is we must guard against religious pride. We, we must guard against religious supremacy, you know. We must guard against uh, hypocrisy. Not that we can stop being a hypocrite because like I said, you know, you get into the church, welcome to the club. But the kind of hypocrisy here that John is talking about is, is where you can really see. You are saying one thing, but you're, you're not living that. You're living totally another. And we must guard against presumption. Now, if you want to bear good fruit, then I want you to go home through this week, I want you to pray, Say, Lord, show me. I want to check the seed and the soil. If you want to have good fruit, you have to have good seed and good soil. No point. Go home and say, Lord, I want to have good fruit. Good fruit. Good fruit. Nothing is going to come out. Amen? You've got to know what seed is being sown within your heart and being planted in there. And I'm praying that each week when you're coming here, when you're declaring the word of the kingdom, we are sowing the seed of the kingdom in you. But I'm doing my part with the word of God, but I can't control the condition of the soil. Go back and read Matthew chapter 13 because it's going to take quite a few months before we get there. You want good fruit, you've got to look at the seed. And I've got full confidence in the seed that we are declaring. But you've got to check the soil. We want good fruit. And so the first thing we look at is that, you know, the, the works that we do, we want them to be fruitful works. Do you know in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 to 15 onwards, it says that there will come a time that whatever we do, whatever we build on the foundation of Jesus Christ, that will be tested by fire. There is a testing by fire. And that's why I am so convinced and so hung up about this one statement in our Keeper's Awakening. It's not about activity. It's about assignments. Amen? See, don't go out there and, I've got to bear good food. I, I, I sign up for this. I sign up for that. I do this. I do that. I mean, all that is activity. Finally, when it's tested by fire, will it stand? We want to have good fruit. And so go back to the Lord and ask Him. Check the seed. Check the soil. Check your relationship with Him because He is the vine and we are the branch. Apart from Him, we cannot bear fruit. And if you're doing things on your own accord and not according to the Master's bidding, I think we have to evaluate, friends. You know, good fruit can be found also in the lives of others because in, in Jude 23, it says that, you know, as we move about, pull others from the fire. 
And I know Jude was probably referring to unbelievers to preach the message of salvation to them so that we can yank them out of Gehenna. But I will apply this warning also to believers who are not living in the way that they should. They are playing with fire. The third thing is that we are being refined by the Holy Spirit and fire. I'm going to share with you a tension that exists in the kingdom always. In Titus chapter 2, verse 14, it says, Jesus who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. So when we read Titus chapter 2, verse 14, who is the one that purifies us when we first believed in him? He cleanses us from every lawless deed and he purifies for himself. He is the one that purifies. Amen? So God is the one who purifies so that we may be zealous for good works. And this is a beautiful head start for us because we are made right with God and we have been cleaned up by Him. Let me give you the other part of the tension. Because in James chapter 4, verse 8, it says, Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts. Now, who does the purifying now? You do. Can you see that tension? God purifies for Himself. And yet we are told to purify ourselves. Well, this needs revelation. Eh? Right? Huh? You go to God and say, so Lord, who? You or me? Me or you? And this is the beautiful thing about our walk with the Lord. It is both Him and us. It's all God and all us. You see, many times we like to say, okay, Lord, you do your part. I do my small part now. You are bigger than me. You do more. God is saying, I will definitely do my part. The question is, will you do all of yours? If there's nothing for us to do about our sins or cleansing or purifying, then cancel this verse. Take this verse out and a few others also, quite a lot. There is something we need to, in better commas, do. See, today's popular theology is Jesus has done everything. You don't have to do anything. That is true to a point of your salvation. There's nothing you can do to bring yourself there. But after that, He empowers you by the Holy Spirit. You see that? He gives you a head start and you say, that, Lord, even if I should fail and I should fall, I have your grace. I come into your throne of grace with boldness. Help me as I purify myself because I know when I do my part, you will more than do yours. See, we are being refined. You have to remember that that's the Lord's ideal for all of us. How does He refine us? You don't like to hear this but He allows trials and sufferings in our lives. The times where you're very jealous. The times where you cannot tahan anymore. The times where you don't understand. The times when people come against you because you carry the name of Jesus. I've said it so many times, you can do everything right and this world is, born, is still in sin. You know, if you can be perfect, someone is still going to pull you down. Jesus did everything right and He was crucified. Can we expect any less or more? 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6 and 7. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by what? Fire may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Friends, we have to understand this. Otherwise, you know, uh, we, we, will, we will fight against each and every one of these things that the Lord allows in our lives. He is wanting to burn away the chaff, burn away the dross, burn away the impurities that is within us so that we can be ref refined and be as pure gold. And it would do us well to heed the words of Jesus to the church in Laodicea. The Laodiceans thought that they were cool. They were, their Bible study score A. 
They do so many things. They're rich. So they think that, you know, they're affluent, they're wealthy. So God must be showering favor and blessing upon them. And Jesus says this, I counsel you, buy from me gold refined in fire. Come to me. All right? You are getting caught in your churchy stuff, your religious stuff, and you're missing me in this. See, religion doesn't save. Jesus saves. Finally, we want to be found to be His wheat and be gathered into His barn. Those are implications. This is my desire. You know, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19, it says this, Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands, having the seal. The Lord knows who are His. The Lord knows who are His. Isn't that wonderful? What an assurance the Lord knows. But sometimes, because He knows, it's also scary. Because it says, and, and He quotes another phrase, let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. So don't read that first part only, eh? Oh, the Lord knows I'm His. Then the Lord says, okay, fine. If you say that you think I know that you are mine, let everyone who names my name depart from iniquity. Show me in your life. There's something we need to do, you see. Now you and I won't know who is who. Today you look in the church, we're confused. Because everybody names the name of Jesus Christ. Even Paul says you be careful because someone will preach to you another gospel. They will declare another Jesus to you. Messiahs will come. There will be different Jesuses in that sense. And I think today we've got a whole supermarket full of Jesus. But I have this promise. It says Jesus will separate. He knows. He's the one who will separate and He will determine which are His and which are not. And I tell you, I better give you this warning. One of my lecturers used to say this. There will be a lot of surprises in heaven. And I pray I'm not the one that is surprising myself in a negative way and find myself not there. There will be a lot of surprises. Do you know that Jesus in the Bible revealed also some of these prizes that some of them, they, they thought they, they would make it. But in the end, finds out that they don't. Matthew chapter 7 onwards, you know, he says, not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord. And they are cast out because of lawlessness, unfaithfulness and unfruitfulness. Matthew chapter 24 talks about the faithful servant as well as the evil servant. Matthew chapter 25, three parables about the, the virgins, about the, the talents, and about the separation of sheep and goats. See, there will be a separation. So I think we need to do a self-evaluation, amen? I think we need to come clean before the Lord. So, oh, no, no, we're saved from the wrath. I said, well, if you understand that, live that way. I'm not taking it away from you, friends. But don't, just because of that statement, be presumptuous. Because in the end, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26, this is written to, to believers. It says, For if we sin willfully, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Well, this sounds totally contradictory. A few chapters before, it says that Jesus was given for us once for all. And yet, there's a warning. You see that? You have to hold both the blessing and the warning together. He says there's no longer a sacrifice for sin, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation, which will devour the adversaries. And it goes on in verse it actually explains in verse 29, it says that, you know why? Because you have trampled upon the work of Jesus Christ as if it's just a cheap thing. You've insulted the Spirit of grace. And in verse 30, For we know Him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. I mean, guys, friends, you can't bluff God. Let's, let's summarize this, right? Right? Don't try to bluff God. And again, 
Another line, the Lord will judge His people. <gasps> his people? Yes. Judgment begins with the house of the Lord. Verse 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Goodness gracious, great balls of fire. Friends, I'm not removing our salvation, you understand? We have been saved from the wrath of God. Would you shout amen? amen. Praise the Lord. But because we have, by His love, by His grace, that's why Paul says now, walk worthy. Live worthy. Show yourself worthy. What a great prize. What an awesome privilege we have. Live for the Lord. And as I was preparing this last point, it was like I was looking at that word and I, I give this one statement. We choose to live separated lives today. And don't wait for that time when we get separated in a wrong place. You see, here we have an option. We choose to separate ourselves. But when it comes to that point, we have no choice where the separation is. Jesus determines and He will know it exactly because the books will be open. So let's conclude. You know, like Johnny Storm, I mean, if you are a fan of the Fantastic Four of a superhero type, it sounds really nice to shout, Flame on! And you, know, you, can, you, you can want to be like Johnny Storm, you know. Yeah! This superhero can turn it fire on, can turn it off, he can control the fire and any fire resource. But you know, that is not so with God's fire. We can't control it at all. Amen? We can't turn it on or off as we please. But when the fire comes, the fire will achieve what it has been set out to do. It will purify or you will destroy. But does that mean we cannot shout flame on? No, we can shout flame on. But you see, when we shout flame on, what we're really saying is, bring it on, Lord. Are you following? We're saying, Lord, flame on. Come on, just set me on fire. Because I am desiring what you desire for me. You want to refine me as pure gold, so Lord, bring it on. Bring it on, Lord. Flame on. Give it to me, Lord. Because Lord, you will enable me. You will walk through the fire with me, right? That's what the Bible says. That though I go through the fire, I shall not be burnt in that sense. And so in that sense, we shout, flame on. And if that's your desire to be refined as pure gold, if that's your desire that you will embrace the challenges that come your way, even to a point of the discipline and the chastening of the Lord, you can shout, flame on. And when you do that, you know you can count it all joy. Not that you enjoy it, but you count it all joy when these things happen because you have at the back of your mind that hope of refinement that will come. You know that your faith and the genuineness of that is being tested, refined, that one day when it's presented before the Lord, it will stand the test. And so I want to close with you. And I want to ask you to respond. How many of you would like to shout flame on? How many of you would like to shout flame on? And I can't make you shout. I'm not going to say one, two, three, shout. All right? Because if you, if you don't mean it, man, it's going to be tough when the fires come. Yeah? Would it be okay I leave it to you to see whether that would be your prayer and your desire? And so let us pray as we close. Lord, thank you for your word always. Lord, we ask your forgiveness that sometimes, many times, Lord, we look at one aspect of your word because it sounds nice and we ignore the other parts. But Lord, we want the full counsel of the Holy Spirit. 
And Lord, I pray that you'll protect hearts tonight and ears tonight, Lord, that they do not hear a message of condemnation because it's not meant to be a condemnation. It's meant to, an, to be an encouragement and even a word of assurance that we who believe in Jesus Christ, we have been saved from the wrath of God. But because we have this awesome privilege and knowledge, Lord, it must determine and direct how we live from this point forth. So help us, Lord. Guide us, Lord. Enable us and strengthen us, especially in those times where we argue and fight against the refining process. Lord, help us also that our hearts be open and be sensitive to others who are caught still in the fire and the fires of hell, even then. That our hearts will be filled so much with your love that we will reach out to them to share the good news of the kingdom and the salvation that comes only through Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we don't shout flame on, Lord. Can we just pray it to you, Lord? Bring it on upon us, Lord. And help us, enable us as you do that. And so as you close, we thank you, Lord. We praise you. We love you, Lord. Thank you for your love and for your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.